0: and we typically meet right there. So let us know that you're interested. We'd love to just kind of uh, move you through that process. Hey, something we're doing um, in the city is we really want to engage our city. We want uh, good city engagement. One of the questions that every church has to answer is, how does the city even know you exist? Just a very simple, fundamental uh, question. And one of the things that we're doing as a church is we're going to participate in a, uh, an event called day of music in our city and so we're just going to open up our campus to actually do that as well right here for people that may walk here we're going to host four different artists we're going to do it outside we're gonna have live music we want everyone to come we're actually have we have some um door hangers that we are we're putting in the, out there in the community and we don't know what kind of turnout we're we're going to get but what we're doing is we're we're going to try something and say hey here we're here And it doesn't mean that we're sharing or proclaiming the gospel that day, but we're just going to engage and spend time with people that aren't that are our ne- our neighbors. This is one of the ways that we can do that. Now one of the most powerful ways that you can do that as a church member and as a Christian is certainly where you live, where you work, and where you play. But this is something that we're doing together. We're going to link arms together and do this. So we'll have music and we want you to come. We want everyone to come. We want you to be really outward focused when you come. Be mindful. Be praying, Lord, Look, what, what, what are you going to do in my heart? Who could I meet that could turn into a gospel opportunity down the line? And maybe you might think, I'm really afraid of that. I don't know what it looks like to share my Faith. And and you might not do that, that that night, and that probably would not be the best time. But we're saying, come be with us and be willing to help. If you're interested in helping, would you let us know in the Connect card? We're going to send the word out there and we're going to be contacting people indiv- individually to help with a couple things one is with our light setup and secondly is with the sound setup and takedown so we're meeting here from like 5:30 until 9:30 tonight. night so it's called day of music we want you we want everyone to be a part of that so on top of that we want every Christian to b- join a team if you don't know what that looks like there's a little document in the back you can look at and say you know what I think I could help with this or maybe there's something that you want to do that's not on there well that's okay. Because as a church, what we're doing is we're working on a few things. There's there's a million things a church can do, but there's a few things that are really important to us right now. One of the things that we are working on is our Twigs ministry. That's our kids. You know, we have the space down below us that is opening up, and we, we're going to need some people. People to help and, and serve in that area and people to just serve in that ministry and, and, and uh, also in be in community and be in a branch group. So, so we want you, we're not trying to do everything, but we can accomplish a few things and do them well. And I want you to know those are a couple things coming up. We want you in community. We're going to need some help with Twig's ministry. So, so you're aware and we would love your help. Right now what I want to do is just pray for my brother Josh. Why don't you come on up here and you're going to bring the word and um, we're going to hear the preaching of the word of God. Father, I lift up my brother, Josh, and I thank you for the blessing he is in my life. And Lord, will you be with him, protect him, and guide him. And Lord, we know by your spirit you can open our hearts, and you have. For those of us whose eyes have been opened to see your grace and to believe by faith and trust in you, it is a sheer act of your mercy and and a miracle. Lord, I pray that you be with our hearts so we'd be ready to hear what you have to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Well, good morning. Um, look, if you have your Bibles, stand with me. Go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 18. Our primary focus this morning will be verses 12 through 18, but I'll actually begin the reading from verse 1 on. When I'm done reading, uh, I'll ask you to take your seats. I'll pray once again, and then we'll start the study of God's word. So, hear the word of the Lord in Acts chapter 18, verse 1. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he, that's Paul, went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent from now on. I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla, and Aquila. Uh, You may be seated. Let me pray one more time, and then we'll dive into uh, this text. So bow your heads and pray with me. Father, we are a stiff-necked people. We have dull ears. And so, Lord, as we approach this text, We need your spirit to soften our hearts, to open our ears, to open our eyes so that we may see Jesus clearly glorified, exalted. And so Lord, we ask that you would do these things, that you would apply this word to our hearts for our good and for Christ's sake in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning, uh, we're in the book of Acts, obviously chapter 18. Uh, we're jumping right in the middle of Paul's second missionary journey. It began way back in Acts chapter 15, the second missionary journey of Paul. Uh, he decides to bring along with him on the second journey a man by the name of Silas. And his purpose was to simply revisit all of the brothers and churches where he proclaimed the gospel throughout his first missionary journey. So quite frankly, what Paul says is, Hey, Silas, come with me. I want to see how everyone's doing. And so he takes another missionary trip. Very early on in that second missionary journey, Paul and Silas, they pick up another close companion. His name is Timothy, and they were convinced that Jesus desired to strengthen the believers and that Jesus desired to open the eyes of those who were to receive the gospel. In fact, If you flip back all the way to Acts chapter 16, we see the gospel of Jesus seeking out a very successful businesswoman by the name of Lydia. The text describes her as being a dealer in purple cloth. She was of the fashion industry. She was most likely financially secure. Purple cloth was very expensive. Uh, It was very rare. And so she was financially stable. She was probably very morally uh, outstanding because where the brothers find her is outside of the city gate, attending a place of prayer. And most likely, she was a very conservative religious woman who probably stood opposed against the cultural norms of pagan worship that was rampant in that day. For all intents and purposes, on the outside, Lydia was a good and moral person, and she was making money. And so if you were a parent in that day, you probably wanted your daughter to be like Lydia. And yet, She had never heard the gospel of Jesus. And so whether she knew it or not, outwardly she looked alive. Inwardly, she was spiritually dead in her sins. And so Jesus, through Paul in the gospel, pursues Lydia and rescues her from her self-righteousness, the kind of righteousness that produces confidence in your morality, which will never make anyone right before God. She needed her heart changed. She needed Jesus to transfer to her "...all of his righteousness, and take from her all of herself false righteousness and sin, so that by Christ's grace alone, believing in him alone, she can finally stand before God forgiven and with a righteousness not of her own." And Paul goes after her. Jesus pursues her through the gospel. Without Jesus's imputed or transferred righteousness to Lydia, she would have found herself at the end of her life, hearing the scariest words that could ever flow from Jesus's mouth, depart from me. I never knew you. So outwardly, she looked morally outstanding. Inwardly, she was spiritually dead. So what does Jesus do? He goes after her through Paul. Paul preaches the gospel, and check out what the Spirit does in Acts chapter 16. Look at verse 14. They're proclaiming the gospel. Lydia is listening, and watch what the Spirit does. The Lord, in verse 14, Open her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Lord did the work. He opened her heart. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And so right there, the Lord changes her heart. She's so excited. She gets baptized and not just her, her entire household. And the Lord rescues her from herself, from her self-righteousness, which is no righteousness at all. She's baptized. She's excited. Her entire household is well. Look what God has done, and then right after that, we see Jesus continuing on the gospel message of Christ, continuing on through Paul, pursuing a different type of person, one who we might say is probably the exact opposite of Lydia. She was not successful. She's a poor little slave girl. You can read about her in verse 16 of Acts chapter 16. Uh, she's She's owned by masters who were exploiting her sad condition to make matters worse. She was demon possessed. Her skills, if we could call it that, brought her owners money, and so she was exploited. However, when I was thinking about her in her early childhood, I, I just thought I doubt that she woke up one day and said, "You know what? When I grow up, I'm going to be a slave girl." Listen, I doubt that was her heart's desire. We don't know the series of events that led to the consequences of her being a slave girl. But in any case, we find her in Acts chapter 16, verse 16, in that unfortunate and terrible condition where she's far away from Jesus. And this is where Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, sends Paul to go after her. Because as you read, you soon discover that the same Jesus who can free a person from the sin of self-righteousness is the same Jesus who can free a person from their own slavery. And Paul commands the evil spirit in the name of Jesus to come out of her and like that, Jesus looks upon this poor girl who was most likely abused and exploited by her masters. He takes this poor little girl who has no family that we can read about in this text. Perhaps she was abandoned, neglected, orphaned, or had a fallout with her family. We don't know but her life was definitely not like Lydia's, and Jesus finds her in that low state, abandoned, abused, controlled by sin, and he rescues her. Her owners saw how so free that she was from her condition, that her owners, rather than rejoicing that her life had been freed, you know what they do? They get angry, they're outraged, they drag Paul and Silas through the marketplace, They gather for them, uh, for themselves, the masters, a crowd. They stir them into a mob, and then they look at Paul and Silas, and they beat them with rods. Other translations say that they were flogged. These owners were upset. Their way of making money obliterated, and so they take out on on, on Paul and Silas. And then they're thrown in prison. What do you think Paul and Silas do? Look at verse 25, Acts chapter 16. They're in prison. They're chained. They're not going anywhere. About midnight, Paul and Silas were what? They could have picked up the phone if they had one back then. What I would have done is that I would have called my attorneys like, hey, lawyer Joe, I'm in prison for no good reason, and I got beaten. I need you to mount a defense for me because this is not right. Well, there were no cell phones back then, and even if there was, were cell phones, I don't think that's what Paul and Silas would have done. I think they would have done exactly what we find them doing in verse 25. I love, it, I love this. It's midnight, Paul and Silas, they're not going anywhere. Their fellow prisoners aren't going anywhere. The guards aren't going anywhere. They're going to use this as a gospel opportunity in prison, and they're praying and singing hymns to God. And notice what Luke says, and the prisoners were listening to them. They had no other choice but to listen to Paul and Silas pray and sing hymns to God. But you know, as you look at this account, you have to ask yourself this question. On this second missionary journey, Jesus pursues a self-righteous woman, a slave girl, but it appears that at last Jesus's gospel is defeated. Paul and Silas, they're bound in prison. So there's no way Jesus can continue, right? Wrong. As you read the account, we discover that Jesus is also in pursuit of a very strange security guard. Now I'm not talking about a mall cop type of guard. I'm talking about a jailer who was ruthless. He was very committed to his job. The more I, I, I read this account, the more I think I, I think he was a psycho. Because what God does is he creates this local earthquake that that is felt only in the prison. In other words, if you were a mile away, you would not have felt this earthquake, but it was so strong that the chains fall off of all the prisoners. And this jailer who is so committed to his job, he's so committed to the standard operating procedures, right? he's so bound to his duty. He knew that if prisoners escaped on his watch, it would cost him his life. And so he whips out the sword, he's like, ah, he's about to kill himself. And I, if I, again, if I was there, I would have been like, psycho, what are you doing? You can't be that committed to your job, can you? Now, I love what Paul does. He's a lot nicer than I am. He says, wait, don't harm yourself. And then we see Jesus beginning to change the jailer's heart. Look at verse 30, chapter 16 still. Then he, that's the jailer, brought them, that's Paul and Silas, out, and he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. What happens next? Jesus transforms his heart. The jailer believes he's baptized, and not just him, his entire household So Jesus goes after a self-righteous woman named Lydia. He pursues that poor slave girl. He goes after this psycho jailer, and on and on in chapter 17, you see him going to, to, to the area of Thessalonica. Then he goes to the Bereans. Finally, he ends up, Paul ends up in Athens. He's by himself. Jesus is pursuing intellectuals and philosophers, and on and on and on, you name it. Jesus is going after all kinds of strange people. And that continues to this day. As I look around the room, and I look in the mirror myself, we're strange people. And God pursues those kinds of people. And then we found Paul, last time we covered this text, entering the city known as Corinth. This is where we're at today. Except when Paul first arrived, he came all alone. Silas and Timothy stayed back in the area of Macedonia, specifically in Berea. They're in Macedonia. They they leave Paul all alone. He's by himself in Corinth, and we learned last time that Corinth was not your typical city. It was morally corrupt, polluted with sin, infected with pagan worship. The minds of the Corinthians were so set on business and pleasure, they pursued the making of money. If Back in the day, if you needed to go to a place to make some money, you'd probably flee to, to Corinth. It was very affluent, lots of merchants. It was like the modern-day Manhattan of, of New York. And that's where people went, but unfortunately that invited all kinds of people from all different types of backgrounds with all kinds of pagan worship. And so Corinth would be described as a place where there were all kinds of gross sexual perversions and lusts and all kinds of sins. Their hearts were impure. They dishonored their bodies among themselves with dishonorable passions. They served the created rather than the creator. This place, spiritually speaking, was in ruins And Paul had probably never seen anything like it. It it took a lot to shake Paul. If you read the, the account in the book of Acts, he's a bold character. And he's not easily moved or shaken until he enters Corinth. And something changes. When he arrives, he's stirred. In fact, he would later write to the Corinthians... In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 3. And by by his own admission, look what he says to the Corinthians. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. This was an altogether different type of city. And Paul confesses he admits I was weak, I was fearful, much trembling. But boy, what we saw last time, we we looked at this text, was how Jesus came through for Paul and for the city. He took Paul to a married Christian couple, Aquila and Priscilla. They showed him warmth and hospitality. We saw Paul becoming more and more encouraged. Then Jesus brought back Silas and Timothy, who came with money, which freed up Paul to preach the gospel full time. And then Jesus himself showed up in, in a vision to Paul. We read about this in Acts chapter 18, verse 9. In Acts chapter 18, verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. So here's how we know that Paul was afraid, because look what the Lord tells him. Do not be afraid. What does that imply? Paul was afraid. And we know that because, again, he, he earlier, or he le- would later write to the Corinthians, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. So Jesus says, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Now, you have to love this threefold promise by our Lord Jesus that he gives to Paul as to why he should not be afraid and why he should continue to be faithful. Look at verse 10. For I am with you. Hey, Paul, remember my presence is always with you. I'm not going anywhere. I'm always with you. Number two, no one will attack you to harm you. Hey, Paul, your life is in my hands. No one will attack you to harm you. And number three, we discussed this last time for I have many in the city who are my people. Hey Paul, I know the city doesn't look all that great, but you have to trust that I have many in the city. We call that predestination. It's what the Bible calls it. This is God's providence. And what we said was, don't even don't dare to step into a city if you do not think that there are those among the city that God has chosen. Don't go. Because you by yourself with your own intellect will never change the hearts and minds of those people. But we are so convinced that God has set aside for himself people that right now, they're asleep and they're dead. And by the proclamation of the gospel, they will come to life. And this fuels Paul. He came in with fear and much trembling. He could have left. The text says after Jesus shows up in that vision and gives him this threefold promise, you know how long he stayed? A year and a half. These promises were the fuel for Paul to be faithful in that city. A year and a half, look at verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months. What did he do? Teaching the word of God among them. And so we're still in Corinth now. We pick it up in verse 12. And it seems like one of Jesus' promises is going to be challenged. Specifically, he says, hey, Paul, don't worry. No one will attack you to harm you. Well, look how this is challenged in verse 12. You can follow along with me in verse 12. But when Galio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. I'm just going to hit pause really quick in this scene as it unfolds. I'm going to hit pause. I'm going to jump in that scene, and we have to look at the characters and see who's there. All right, what Luke does is he introduces us to a man by the name of Galio. He's described as a proconsul over Achaia. Who's Galio? What's a proconsul? right? Galileo was like a governor, that was his title. He was the proconsul, he was a senator. He would be like the judge among his region that he was given. The large region that he was given was known as Achaia. Guess what the capital city of Achaia was? Corinth. And so he's in Corinth in the capital city of Achaia. And back then in the ancient world, they did have courthouses that were stationary and there were judges that were installed in those court uh, house, uh, houses and they would listen to the cases brought before them by the people, and they would, you know, give rulings and execute, uh, you know, judgment and whatever. But they also had these different places that were open to the public, and the proconsul, they were set up throughout the different cities, and the proconsul would be like an itinerant judge. He would go to one place, he would sit down on the seat wide open to the public on the judgment seat, and the people in that public square could come and bring their charges uh, against another, and the proconsul would listen. He would stay there for a little bit of time. This is hurting my uh, quads, by the way. I um, <laughs> need to exercise, uh, or just stand up. Yeah, standing up is good, and, uh, and a- after, after some time, the uh, proconsul, in this case Galileo, would move along to the next city, and he would sit down, and he would listen again, and execute judgment, and he would go to the next city, and on and on. So he would be like an itinerant Judge and his authority was well, it carried the full weight of the Roman government, and so that means that in his judgment seat, he can, uh, he, w- he had the authority to send people to prison, he could give people fines, uh, he could uh, order beatings, he could even order the death penalty, and whatever he, uh, whatever he ruled could be established as precedents for other judges in different cities. in other words, if there was another judge in a different city who was facing a similar court case uh, that the proconsul heard in a different city, this judge in this city could then say, ah, based on that ruling, I'm going to do such and such. So the Jews are very sneaky because they know that they have this judge, the proconsul, Galil. He is not a Christian. He's, he just so happens to be there. I love that Luke. He's a remarkable historian. We know the year that the proconsul was there, 80, 51, and 53, for you historian nerds. He's there. Luke records it, and the people are like, hey, we could take advantage of this. We don't like Paul. He doesn't know Jesus. Let's attack him to harm him. Let's see if we can get the death penalty. Let's see if we can beat him, and that's what we see in verse 12. So when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal. That's the judgment seat. This doesn't look good for Paul. There's many of the Jews they don't like Jesus. There's an unbelieving governor installed, the proconsul Gallio. He doesn't like Jesus. And there's only one person, Paul, who will defend himself. Now, if you're like me, I, I would look at that and say, I think Paul's the underdog here. It's just one against many in front of an unbelieving judge. So look at the craftiness of the, of the people of the Jewish com- uh, community in verse 13. Look at their accusation their charge. Verse 13, they were saying that this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. All right, well, that's their united attack. So I'm going to hit pause again. Is Jesus's promise compromised? He just said, Jesus did, to Paul in a vision that no one will attack you to harm you. Well, here we have the schemes of men in opposition to that promise. So the question that you need to be asking yourself as you see this account unfold is this, will Jesus's promise fail in the face of strong opposition? And these Jews, they're, they're hell-bent and, 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 and so intently opposed to Paul, and you could kind of appreciate why if you go back in verse 8, Paul had, had gone into the Jewish synagogue uh, most of the people in the synagogue opposed him. They reviled him. Paul shook his garments and basically uh, was uh, making a statement of condemnation to, those, to the Jewish people in the synagogue. And then there was one among them that believed in the Lord Jesus, and he wasn't just an ordinary fellow. He was the ruler of the synagogue. And so the now Jewish people, they're probably really upset. And I could just imagine them as a group raising their charge against Paul, and they were saying that this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. They have a united attack set against Paul. Look at verse 14. Now, it was very customary for the, for the plaintiff, in this case the accuser, to give their opening statement, and it was tradition and customary for the defendant to mount a counter-response, and so here Paul's about to open his mouth. He's probably got a lot of things to say, if you know Paul. He's not your typical uh, unlearned uh, person. He's a very learned man, well-studied, and so I could only imagine what he would have said, but he has no opportunity to even open his mouth, or at least to speak. He can not open his mouth. He can't speak. Look at verse 14. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, or oh Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Now the judge, he's not a Christian, all right? He's not a Christian. I've said this multiple times. I'm going to keep saying it. He's not a Christian. And he looked at the Jewish community, and he saw Paul and the Jews really as one, uh, one religion, under the title of Judaism, he did not know that the Christian and the Jewish community were distinct and they had different beliefs. That in the Christian belief, uh, they looked on Jesus to be the Messiah. And the Jewish community was like, no, that's blasphemous. It's so blasphemous. We so despise that. We want to throw you in prison. And if we had it our way, we'd kill you. And the judge, who's not a believer, he says, I don't get it. <laughs> I, listen. Listen, Jews. No. No. He's probably annoyed, actually. And I say that because look at verse 15. And by the way, what Luke records for us is just a summary. You can tell that the Jews mounted a scathing attack against Paul. Of course, it didn't go anywhere, but we know that there was more that was said because in verse 15, look what, look, look what Galileo resummarizes. He says, but since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. So we know that the Jewish people, man, they were scheming. We know who their leader was. His name is Sosthenes. He comes up in verse 17. He's the ruler of the synagogue. He was probably the one mounting the attack. He thought himself super confident and competent, and he was like, oh, yeah, I've got a lot of things to say where Paul is just telling people to obey laws contrary to the Roman law and the Jewish law. And they go on and on, but the judge interrupts. And he goes on in verse 15, the judge, and he says, I refuse to be a judge of these things. In other words, case closed, I don't want to hear it. Now that's fascinating, and you know that the Jews did not take this well right? They had been scheming to attack. They had Sosthenes, that slick fellow who's peculiar in my mind. Every time I envision him, I think, what a dweeb. And he's like trying to preach or uh, trying to go to the judge and try to convince him. The judge says, I don't want to hear. Case closed. And now they just break out in pandemonium. How do I know that? Look what it says next. It is, there's such a commotion. There's so much drama in, in, that, in that place. that in verse 16, it says, and he drove them from the tribunal. It's as if Sosthenes and the Jewish community were like, but wait, 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 but let, let, me, let me reclarify, let me restate. And the judge just goes, you know, just kick them out. And he drove them out. In fact, if you have the NIV translation, it says he ejected them out of the court, out of the tribunal. That's pretty remarkable. And all of this is going on. All of this drama is unfolding. Paul hadn't even opened his mouth. He didn't even say anything. That's remarkable. Can you imagine that? All the drama unfolding, the Apostle Paul hadn't even opened his mouth. He's just standing there watching all of this going on. His jaw probably dropped as he witnessed the authority of Jesus and that promise come to pass right before his very eyes. He saw the Jews' scheme rendered completely ineffective, And Paul wasn't even, uh, the proconsul wasn't even a Christian. Friends, listen. The promise of Jesus was never compromised. It was never at risk. Look at verse 17. Here's their lead ruler. This poor fellow, look what happens to him in verse 17. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Galio, that's the judge, paid no attention to any of this. Okay, now listen, there's a little bit of speculation here as to who beat him up. If you have the KJV translation, the KJV translation says this, then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the chief ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. In other words, in that translation, the conclusion would be that the Greeks thought that this whole thing was a hoax. But the Jewish community brought before the proconsul a big hoax, and they didn't take well to that deceitfulness and the wastefulness of their time, and so they just really let him have it. Those who were listening from the outside, they went to Sosthenes, they seized him, and they beat him up. But you know, the earlier translations of the Bible, it doesn't say the Greeks. It says they, like in our translation. And so that brings a little bit of speculation as to who really beat him up because we don't know. When you're reading the text, it's kind of hard to tell. Some people speculate that it was Galileo's law enforcement soldiers, that these highly trained officers of the law with all of their brute strength and weaponry, it was them that seized, uh, seized Sosthenes and just really beat him up. Others speculate that actually it was Sosthenes' own people, uh, that after Sosthenes blew the case and suffered such an embarrassing defeat, uh, his own people were so outraged as it, at his incompetence and his ineptitude that they seized him and they beat him up. Uh, we, we don't know who beat him up. Whoever it was, they really let him have it. And he was left there wounded, bloodied. And Galileo, the text says, paid no attention to any of this. And in verse 18, just to wrap this up at least for the reading of the text, it says, After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with them Priscilla and Aquila. So Paul hadn't opened his mouth. He wins the case. Jesus' promise is never compromised. He's probably marveling, as I am, at the authority of Jesus that he's able to use an unbeliever, unbelieving governor to fulfill uh, his promise but I want you to notice be, uh, that there is a space of time between verse 17 and verse 18. If you look at verse 17 and 18, there is, a, there is a bit of space of time. Luke doesn't fill in all the details. And what I think we find there in that space between 17 and 18, I think we, f- we discover something about Jesus' authority that I, when I first saw it, it just blew my mind. I mean, my mind was blown at the fact that he was able to use the proconsul to fulfill his promise. But then I think what happened between 17 and 18, that little space there, is I think Jesus went to Sosthenes, that that man who stood opposed. It's as if he goes to Sosthenes, lifts him up from that sad and terrible condition, and it's as if Jesus transformed his life. It's as if Jesus goes after that peculiar enemy who stood opposed, and out of sheer mercy, Jesus brings life to that dead soul of Sosthenes and turns this enemy into a friend. Now, you should stop me dead in my tracks and say, hold on, you imaginary reader. Where do you get that? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. You can turn there or you can just listen. Sosthenes, we just read, was the enemy of Jesus. And I just said that there's a space between 17 and 18 that I believe highlights Jesus' authority to an even higher degree. And I say this and I just said that I believe Jesus turned this enemy into a friend. You want to know why? Listen, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul writes the letter to the Corinthians, he establishes himself as one of the authors. One of the authors. And he says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother, Sosthenes. Sosthenes! The man who was an enemy of Jesus is now one of the co authors of one of the books of the Bible? How does that happen? That's amazing! When I read I'm like, oh, what? The last time we saw him in the book of Acts, he was beaten, he was seized, he was, he was utterly destroyed. And now he's one of the co-authors of the books of the Bible. That's amazing. That's pretty exciting stuff, right? I mean, I was leaping out of my chair. I said, you gotta be kidding me. Nope. That's Jesus' authority on full display transforming an enemy into a friend And now we get a better glimpse as to why Jesus wanted Paul to stay in Corinth, even though Paul came with fear and much trembling, because Jesus had many in the city that would be his people. Which city are we talking about? Corinth. It's not your model city. It's not your model people. You know why? God does not pursue model cities and model people, because listen, they don't exist. The only thing that exists in these cities, in our cities, are people created in the image of God who have rebelled against his good ways, they suppressed his truth, they follow after ungodliness, they have been given up to dishonorable passions, their hearts of impurity, they serve created things rather than their creator, they pursue cheap fantasies rather than enjoying the benefits of God's good graces. That's exactly what we see in Corinth, it's what we see in our cities today, and Jesus steps in there, in Corinth, to expose their evil deeds, to open their eyes, to bring Bring life to their dead souls to transform their heart of sin into a renewed heart that receives his grace, brings about repentance, where their hearts are set after new affections, new desires, namely their hearts are set after Jesus. And he says, Paul, don't be afraid. Go there, keep talking. I've got many in the city. And what does Paul do? He goes and he preaches, and hearts are transformed. And, and, and their, their cold hearts are now changed, and they beat with love and affection for Jesus, the man, the man God who changes their hearts. And Christ delivered them from their evil deeds, from their sin, and from the judgment of God's righteous wrath. Paul wasn't afraid after after standing before the proconsul. He knew that he had one on his side that had even greater authority. On his side, Paul had the greater and eternal proconsul, the governor, Jesus. No wonder our passage ends with Paul staying many days longer. He came in with much fear, Jesus shows up, says, don't be afraid. He's renewed, he's refreshed, and he persevered, and he did not quit. And that's our text. So listen, what I want to do is I want us to look at four key points. What are four things that we can take away from this text? You know, I was, um, I was going over this text a little earlier with my kids uh, earlier this week, and I read it to them, and they were all into it, and they were sad when they didn't see Jesus save anyone, but no one was baptized. No Molly, no one was baptized. But, Sosthenes, and she was like, ah. Oh. And I stood back and I said, okay, wait, time out. What do you think is the main point of this passage? We have to get the main point of this account in uh, Acts chapter 18. And they said exactly what I had already planned out for our key point number one. So my kid said, daddy, Jesus keeps his promise. I said, Caleb, you're darn right. Jesus keeps his promise. You're absolutely right. That's what we learn from this passage, that Jesus keeps his promise. He tells Paul, my presence will be with you. You will not be attacked for harm. I have many in the city who are my people for future faith. And he did not fail Paul. And the same is true for you and I. He will not fail you. I know you have doubts. Paul had them too. I have them too. And I know you have fears. Paul had them too. I have them too. But in the face of uncertainty, even when opposition surrounds you like an army and tries to obscure and hide God's promise, Remember the words of Jesus. I am always with you. Your life is in my hands. You can trust in my providence. Jesus keeps his his promise. Like for Paul, listen, the waves of suffering will come. They will come to you. The waves of suffering will come. Times of loneliness will come. But in every hardship, we have an unchanging promise where Jesus promises, I am always with you. Your life is in my hands. You can trust in my providence. Charles Spurgeon, in speaking about Jesus as the unchanging rock, the rock of ages, we sang about it earlier this morning. He was quoted as saying this, listen, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. The waves of hardship will come. The waves of suffering will come. And Spurgeon says, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages, against Jesus. The scheming plans of the Jewish people could never break Jesus' promise. They failed. Jesus prevailed. Paul learned to kiss the waves of hardship because they threw him against the unchanging promises of Jesus who always keeps his promise. I am with you. Your life is in my hands. You can trust my providence. If you're a weary and worn out Christian, there exists for you the hope of this truth that Jesus keeps his promise promise. Here's key point number two. There exists for God's people a strength not of our own. I'm going to let that sink in a bit. There exists for God's people a strength not of our own. Remember, Paul entered the city of Corinth with fear and much trembling what I love about Paul is that he admits his weakness and fears. He doesn't try to walk around with a facade of strength. I think we can all appreciate that about Paul, right? He writes to the Corinthians, and he says, Look, I came with you with fear, much trembling, and weakness. Do you know how exhausting it is to keep up the act of trying to look like you're stronger than you really are? You've been there. You try to portray an act that you're really stronger than you really are, as if you have it all put together. This is certainly true of those in the world, but I think it's also true for some of us Christians too. We've wrongly convinced ourselves that somehow we can pull from within ourselves this inner invincible power and strength. That you can somehow pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Listen, God did not create you with invincibility. He created you for dependency to depend upon him, a strength not of your own. It's bestowed upon those who are his children through faith in Jesus that we might marvel at his strength. It is so exhausting to pretend like you're strong. I would urge you and I to put to death that seed of self-righteousness. Look at me. I've got my life in order. No. Deep down, you know you're not strong enough. Oh, my spiritual life is so put together. But it's all an act. It's designed to fool those around you to make you look stronger than you are, and you're robbing God of his glory and supplying your strength. In that secret place of your mind, you know of your frailties, you know the struggle against sin, you succumb to pride, you chase after vain things, your faith is tested and assaulted, and if you're honest, it doesn't take much to move your faith. Just think, look back the last week or two or three or four or year, What were the things that moved you that you would look back to now and say, I can't believe that moved you or moved me? We're not as strong as we think we are in ourselves. You weren't designed to be invincible. You were designed to depend upon the Lord because we have a strength that is not of our own. And so quit pretending. Quit pretending like you're strong. I'm saying this to bless you. You're not strong. I'm I'm not saying that to harm you. On on your own, you're a miserable, weak creature. God bless you. (laughs) Listen, if if I was Luther, he would look at you and say, you're a worm. On your own, you're a measly, weak creature. On your own, you're defenseless against the pressures of this world. On your own, you're powerless against Satan's schemes. On your own, your manufactured self-righteous false strength will eventually burn out and you will be exposed. Get rid of it. Put to death the seed of self-righteousness of your own strength. You know what the Bible calls that? This arrogance and boasting of your own strength? James chapter 4 verse 16. It's not just foolish, it's evil. That's the Bible says. You know why? Because you're robbing God of his glory where he supplies you strength and so that you can boast on him. I was weak. He was strong. He gave it to me. Wow! As opposed to, how's life? Oh, man, I'm doing so great. Doing so great. Read my Bible. Nope. On your own, by yourself, you're weak. Paul found a strength not of his own. His confidence was in Christ. He entered fearful. He persisted, however, with a courage not of his own. Some of us this morning, we might find ourselves thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get through such and such. I'm here right now, and I don't know how I got here, and and it is hard. And I can't say what the psalmist says in Psalm chapter 27. Let me bring it up for you on the slide. This is remarkable. Some of you cannot say this. Psalm chapter 27, verse 3 because of your circumstances, this is really hard for you. Where the psalmist with confidence, he says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. That's a strong, strong sense of confidence. If an army surrounds me, I will not be afraid. Wow. Some of us, two or three people come up against us, say some nasty things, and we're dejected. This man just said, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. How? How is that possible? How do you have such courage? Is there this inner invincibility within ourselves? Look at verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? You get it? His strength is not in himself. Verse 1 reveals that this psalmist says, It's the Lord who is my light. It's the Lord who is my salvation. He's my strength. It ain't me, because I'm weak. I've got no strength. And he looks to the Lord and he says, He is my light. He is my salvation whom shall i fear and then you get to verse 23 if an army comes if war r- arises yet i will be confident listen you're not your light you're you can't find your own way you're not your own salvation you're not your own strength so let's quit pretending like you are. It's exhausting, and beyond that, your boasting is evil, according to James chapter 4, verse 16. It's the Lord who is my light. It's the Lord who is my salvation. It's the Lord who is the stronghold of my life. Therefore, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? Dear brother and sister, you will go through the Christian life with many hardships. If you have confidence apart from Christ, what you really have is arrogance and pride. You're still in God's glory of supplying you his strength. I urge you to repent continually of these things, and through faith in Jesus, rely upon a strength not of your own. Rely upon God's strength as you go through these hardships of the Christian life and be in continual repentance, because we have from God a strength not of our own. He is our light. He is our stronghold. Therefore, of whom shall we be afraid? Here's point number three. Jesus is the highest authority. He's the supreme governor We see that in Acts chapter 18, don't we? We see but a small glimpse of his authority. He keeps his promise to Paul, and the means by which he keeps it is through an agent who is an unbelieving proconsul. That's amazing. And what we learn from this passage is that Jesus, the great governor, exercises his authority freely over the unbelieving governor. Elsewhere in scriptures it describes God as being able to melt the heart of kings and rulers whereby he exercises free and full authority. In some cases he exercises his authority over them and in other cases he exercises his authority through them like what we see in Paul's case before Gallio. You see despite the crafty schemes of the people raising a charge against Paul through this bringing him before an unbelieving proconsul nothing happens to Paul. Why? Because he is on the side of the supreme governor, namely Jesus, who has all authority. And we saw, what we saw in Acts chapter 18 is just but a glimpse, this invisible authority of Jesus. It's invisible because you don't really see it. It's not at the forefront, but we know. He, he, he gave a promise, and that promise came to pass. That's authority. But I want to give you an even greater uh, visible authority of Christ. You guys want to see how much authority he has? Buckle up. Look at Revelation chapter 19 here we see Jesus not riding on a measly little donkey, but here we see Jesus completely, completely with full authority. Look at Revelation chapter 19 verse 11. This is John. He's been given a glimpse of what will one day happen, and Jesus tells John John, I'm going to show you a lot of things. Write them down, record them. And now we come upon Revelation 19. Look what he says. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, not a donkey, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword, with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Listen, Jesus is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He governs governors. There is no political system. There is no political power. There is no political government that can exercise the same power by which Jesus rules. And here in the book of Acts, we have but a small glimpse. But in the book of Revelation, we see it a little bit more clearly. John reveals in greater detail that he will come down, Jesus will come down on a white horse. His eyes are like a flame of fire, sharp sword from his mouth, robe dipped in blood, tattooed on his thigh are are, are the words written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You see, when the commander of the army of the Lord has his sword drawn, when the one who sits on a white horse, whose eyes are like a flame of fire, when he shows up, When the one whose robe is dipped in blood and on whose thigh is tattooed, king of kings and lord of lords, when he shows up, he will not fail you. And the plans of men will not stand. Galileo was not the ultimate governor in this case. Without even knowing it in the book of Acts, he was the agent by which Jesus kept his promise to Paul. And he can, because Jesus is the commander of the army of the Lord, he is the supreme governor, he is the king of kings, and he's the lord of lords. And because he is, then the question is this. Are you for him? Are you on his side? We have this conviction that he is the king of kings, the lord of lords, he holds all authority and power. We have confidence that he is our king. So what's your conduct like? Are you following him within all areas of your life? Are you on his side? Are you obeying his commands? Are you taking advantage of the graces that he's given you so that your faith may be increased? Are you reading your Bible? Are you going to church? Are you in community? These things don't do anything in and of themselves, but these are the means of grace that God has given you so that your faith will not be shaken. These are the means in which God gives us. We have the blessings of the scriptures, not because the words on the page do anything in and of themselves, but he has declared that this will be the thing that I will use my spirit to strengthen your faith. So if he, is all of, if, if he does represent all authority, if he is the king of kings, if he is the lord of lords, what's, what's our conduct like? Have we given ourselves fully to him? Our confidence ought to be in him. He is our commander, he's our captain, he's our champion, he's the supreme governor. If indeed we are in Christ, this is exactly what we see in the book of Acts chapter 18. And so I ask you, are you on his side? And point number four, you can be, because point number four from this text, Jesus can transform his enemies into his friends. When Jesus comes as a judge, if you're outside of Christ, you will not stand a chance before his judgment seat. When he comes and he makes war, you will not stand. It will be a frightening and terrifying thing If when he comes, you stand opposite of him. But the good news of Jesus is that for now, he comes as a rescuer. For now, he comes to forgive. For now, he comes to pursue his enemies, not for war, but for friendship. And so will you, like Sosthenes, receive the friendship of Christ? Will you cast your entire life under the authority of King Jesus Do you not see what benefits are set before those of whom Christ has saved? Through Paul, we see confidence and strength restored. We see Paul's fears vanished. We see doubts removed. We see his foes conquered, his sorrows absent, his peace now present. Do you not see what benefits are in store for those of us who have been drawn to Jesus? Through Sosthenes we see full redemption and pardon of sin. We see a man who received beating from men he deserved a far more severe punishment from God, yet he received the Savior who took on the load of all of his sins for God's severe wrath to grant forgiveness and friendship and eternal life to that poor, miserable sinner of Sosthenes, that one-time enemy of Jesus. But now he is cleansed and forgiven. Do you see the authority of Jesus worked out on behalf of his people? on behalf of God's people. In Galileo we see God working through those who are not his for those who are. Through John in the book of Revelation, we see Jesus crowned as king and in glory with an authority so sharp it will strike down nations. Jesus commands our submission. Throughout the city of Corinth in the book of Acts, we see that Jesus came to seek, he came to call, and he came to save the lost. He had many in that city. I can name you just some names that were in that city that have been regenerated by Christ Phoebe, Tertius, Erastus, Quartus, Chloe, Gaius, Stephanus, and his whole household Fortunatus, Achaicus, Sosthenes. Are you his people? It is because Jesus has pursued you, I have many in the city. If you are his this morning, you ought to rejoice that Jesus keeps his promise that even though the storms of life may come and the fears might pile on, there is courage to be drawn from Jesus, a strength not of your own. He is able to keep his promise. He is the supreme judge, faithful and true. On his thigh is the name written, King of kings, Lord of lords. He will not fail you. And if he was able to turn Corinth upside down, then we believe that by faith, he can turn your fears, your sins, and our city upside down and make something beautiful come to life. What have you not surrendered to your commander? What is it that causes struggle, strife, sin in your life? Dear Christian, repent, cling with confidence to Jesus. And if you're not his people this morning, surrender to the king, repent, and let him wash you cleaner and whiter than snow like Sosthenes. Amen? Let me wrap up with a prayer from the Valley of Vision. It's called Victory. I'll read this, you guys just listen, and then I'll pray. Says this, o divine Redeemer, great was Thy goodness in undertaking my redemption, in consenting to be made sin for me, in conquering all my foes. Great was Thy strength in enduring the extremities of divine wrath, in taking away the load of my iniquities. Great was Thy love in manifesting Thyself alive, in showing Thy sacred wounds that every fear might vanish. And every doubt be removed. Great was thy mercy in ascending to heaven and being crowned and enthroned, there to intercede for me, there to help me in temptation, there to open the eternal book, there to receive me finally to thyself. Great was thy wisdom in devising this means of salvation. Bathe my soul in rich consolations of thy resurrection life. Great was thy grace in commanding me to come hand in hand with thee to the Father, to be knit to him eternally, to discover in him my rest, to find in him my peace, to behold his glory, to honor him who is alone worthy. In giving me the spirit as teacher, guide, power, that I might live repenting of sin, Conquer Satan, find victory in life. When thou art absent, all sorrows are here. When thou art present, all blessings are mine. Amen. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the wonderful truth of your word. And we can trust in your promises that Jesus is our highest authority. that we can draw strength that is not of our own and that you transform enemies into friends. Oh Lord, we pray that your spirit would impress that upon our hearts, that we would see you glorified and that we, your people, would be encouraged to live in continual repentance and submission under King Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen.
2: Thanks, Joshua. Um, with this whole service, this whole time when we gather together is worship of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that Josh was just telling us about. And this time, from the beginning to the end of our service, is all about him. Um, we come to another place of worship at this time, but it's more of a proclamation. We're going to do three things. We're going to worship in song. We're going to respond in proclamation of our dependence on him by giving from what he's given to us. And we are going to proclaim his name and what he has done for us on the cross and the um, destruction of sin through this time of communion. I'm gonna read to you from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's